Malachi chapter 1 tonight. Take your Bibles, turn there. Verse number 6 of the first chapter, the book of Malachi says, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, respect, reverence? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you. O priest uh, that despise my name, and you say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Now God replying, You offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee, or despised thee, dishonored thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And then the Lord says, And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? If you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts. And this is a group of people, you know, um, supposing on the grace of God in a, in a wrong way. Verse 10, Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name. And a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it, that ye say, The table of the Lord is polluted. And we think the altar there is what's being referenced. And the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye have brought this was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrifice unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the night, the opportunity to assemble together. Lord, I trust the time we've had together so far has been profitable, edifying, and encouraging. Lord, as we consider this text, Lord, I, whose application I think is very obvious and evident, Lord, I, I pray we'd let this question, this thought, uh, Lord, ruminate in our hearts and minds tonight is, Lord, is what we're offering, Lord, worthy of your acceptance. And so, I pray for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. God bless you. Malachi, the name meaning God's messenger, and certainly this man was that, a messenger of God, was most likely the last of all Israel's prophets during what we might call the Old Testament era. What really began with Moses, probably as the first prophet, God speaking through a chosen vessel to a larger audience was coming to a close with this man, Malachi. Divine revelation through oracle. And we discuss this word oracle is really just God speaking to the heart and mind of a man in such a way that then he takes that message and delivers it to people um, in, in a... Uh, an inspired way, so it can be recorded in the way of God. 
has really now been closed and is closing with Malachi. Today, God uses preachers to declare His revelation that has been openly revealed in this book, in this Word. Um, however, while maybe the way that God delivers His truth is a little bit different, as I've already mentioned, the heart that needs preaching, the heart that needs teaching, the heart that needs the oracle and truth of God really hasn't changed much over thousands of years. Um, we stand in the same need today in the New Testament era as these people did, the ancient Jews in the Old Testament era. In Malachi's day, the temple, and we've just a little bit of a review, the temple had been rebuilt. Uh, the people Mal the Malachi is speaking to are the post-exiled Jews. These are a group of people who had been um, in uh, Babylonian captivity, um, then released when Babylon was overthrown by Persia. Uh, they were released by Cyrus, and they were Darius. They were able to go back home and, and really have a level of autonomy again. And initially, under Zerubbabel and Joshua, they rebuilt the temple. Later, they would rebuild the walls under Nehemiah. They would receive instruction from the Word of God that had been missing for 70 years from Ezra. And so, these people are really um, now probably 100 years or so down the road from all this. They're, they're, they're involved um, in, in daily life. They have every um, reason to be really doing the work of God. And, and this is the context in which Malachi is speaking. And the people had seen God work throughout their lives. Now, they witnessed or at least knew very closely in terms of generation that God brought them back as a nation from captivity. And uh, I think it would be fair to suggest that the people under the present circumstances, though not ideal and not the millennial kingdom they had hoped for, that they should have reason to be happy, to be joyful, to be pleased with God, to be thankful for the Lord and His goodness and mercy and grace. But instead, the audience of, my, of, of Malachi, the people, were focusing on what was not right in their life. Now, isn't that the way we do life sometimes? We have a thousand things right, and yet we, we are like people who with an otherwise healthy body find the splinter in the finger. And that's what we talk about. That's what we focus on. And, and I know the membership of Eastland Baptist Church is beyond that and better than that. But there are still maybe a few who, despite all the blessings that might be present, you know, have that spiritual gift of seeing the singular flaw. And sometimes that can be helpful if seen properly and addressed properly. But in this case, they were just complainers. They, these people were not of the right heart. And, uh, and it was bit because of this. As we've already studied, when they came back from um, Babylon, in their theological understanding, the Millennial Kingdom should have started. They thought that's what had been promised them. Well, we're going to come back from these seven years of captivity, and the Messiah is going to come, and we're going to have the Millennial Kingdom. And yet we know that's not what God promised. And what God wanted them to be, uh, more than answering the timetable for that, is do you have a heart that the King can come back for? And, and they didn't really like having responsibility for that. They were still, under the circumstances, experiencing a measure of difficulty from the community around them. And to the point of our text tonight, in their mind and heart, God was asking too much of them. And this had really been a complaint from the days of rebuilding the temple initially, that God was just asking too much of them as His people. Well, these attitudes of discontent and unhappiness with God uh, were now beginning to manifest, and they were showing. And <clears throat> These people were in need of encouragement and scriptural admonition and exhortation. 
What they were doing, specifically uh, that Malachi was seeing, is they were engaged in half-hearted worship. They were, they were doing the obligatory thing and going to church. They had a form of godliness, but really weren't involved in the power of it. They were singing songs with their mouth, but not their heart. They were giving because they were supposed to, and that's your duty. But what, what they were giving in relation to what they had been blessed with was, was really disparaging to God. It was like giving a nickel, you know, for a $100 meal to the waitress. It was insulting. It just, it was so beneath the majesty of God that he took offense at this. And, and they were doing this because they ha had a heart of duty. And whenever pe God's people, you know, live in duty rather than devotion, they're always going to give the bare minimum. And, and, and that's just not that duty's wrong. It's just it cannot inspire the same thing that devotion can. And they had this problem. And so they were going through religious motions. But upon examination, the routine of their time together and, and really just their larger sacrificial religious system, it was empty. It was religious, but it was not inspired. It, was, it had effort to it, but it wasn't a full effort. Um, these are the same conditions of heart and mind that existed, you know, really centuries before. For example, in, in the day of Amos, he had the same complaint against God's people. In Amos chapter 5, 21, this is what God said to this prophet. He says, I hate and I despise your feast days, and I will not smell your psalm assemblies. And of course, that's a picture of God accepting their worship. He said, I won't accept the worship that you're going through the motions and offering. He says, though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. He says this, take thou away from me the noise of thy songs. Man, that makes you think. You know, when God hears us sing, does he hear a melody or does he hear noise? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a really reflective uh, thoughts here. He said, take away from me the noise of thy song, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials, or the, or, or the idea of musical instruments. See, even in the early day um, of, you know, these, of this minor prophet era, these people were not engaged in heartfelt worship, and this is why they ultimately went to captivity, because they never really had a heart for God. Um, in Isaiah, and we won't turn there, but in the first chapter, the same accusation. You know, this is centuries earlier from this man of God. You know, he, he basically said this, the way you're going to church, the way you're going to the temple, you're just really treading upon the temple. In other words, he's saying you're just walking in and you're walking out. You're doing nothing holy or inspired there. Your, 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 your oblations, your worship, it's vain. It's empty. It, it's, it's uninspired. Your disgruntled worship, this is what God says, it's a weariness to me to hear you come in here and complain, to see your attitude in which you come out off the street into this temple. I'm just, God's saying, I'm just tired of seeing that. Um, he said, what I want from you is to come in here and clean your hearts. This is Isaiah. I, I, want, I want you to turn from your evil ways to, to, to God's ways. I, I want to see worship that's not empty. All these same attitudes and actions were pres present in the audience that Malachi is speaking to in our text. So as we examine this text, um, 
Um, we're going to see this theme of a worship that God will not receive all throughout the remainder of this book. Now remember the, the way that God is communicating um, in this particular uh, book is in a hypothetical conversation between God and the people. You know, there's not a dialogue between God and the nation. That wouldn't really be possible. But what God is doing is He's communicating with the spirit of the people. In other words, if the spirit of the people, if the theme of the heart of the people could all speak in one accord, um, this is the conversation that God would have with them. This is if God was to engage in this, then this is how they would respond as a nation. And so it's really this idea of disputation, argument. God's willing at a minor level to condescend to their poor attitudes and their thoughts and engage the people in a conversation to prove to them He loves them. In the first five verses, remember God engaged in this disputation, this conversation, this argument to prove that He loved them. And He was arguing over and over, I, I love you. I, I, you're my covenant people. And no matter what you do, my love will not be affected or altered, but it would be nice to be loved back. So tonight we're looking at the second argument, or the second hypothetical conversation between God and the people. In verse 6, you can begin to look there. In verse 6, God is speaking. And He begins this thought about what I will call unworthy worship. And He uses some relationships in life that were deep-seated and rooted in the life of Jewish community. So He's, he's picking relationships that the Jewish people would have had a very strong impressed opinion about. Um, these, these are relationships that they followed a code of social ethics about. And so, you know, God's kind of trapping them here with these things He's going to say. But He starts in, at a place that they would have a very strong opinion about socially. And He says, uh, I want you to think about the father and son relationship. Okay, in, in the Jewish mind, father-son relationship would be one of love. But first and foremost, it was one of respect. People were identified by their family. And the way a young man conducted himself was reflected on the father. And the father took great pride in his son. But the thought that would be really interwoven in the fabric of their thinking was, is that a son owes his father respect. Or parents owe, you know, the child respect. You know, you could say this, a daughter owes the dad, the mom, the family respect. This honor of family was... Uh, prominent in Jewish thinking. It was part of their social structure, their religious structure, and their political structure. Um, it goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments that were supposed to honor your, your parents, honor your father and mother. And there was a time when simple disrespect or rebellion on the part of a son, uh, you know, could have seen him on the other side of some rocks, of a stony. So so in regard with respect that the offense of disrespect or failing to honor a parent was punishable as a crime. And so it was a big part of life. To have a son in Jewish life that dishonored you through his conduct was incredibly shameful. I mean, it, it would make a dad hang his head if a son didn't serve the Lord, if he didn't do right. It was, it was a really it was a big deal. And so, you know, God is launching from this relationship of respect, and He's saying, okay, so let me tell you how I feel. Um, as a son honors his father. Okay, and I'm going to jump ahead. He's going to basically say, I should, I should receive at least that from you. 
The second relationship he uses is that of servant and master. And that relationship, because that was also very tightly woven into the fabric of thinking. Now, the institution of slavery or bond servant was something that Jewish community knew about, not necessarily practiced a lot, but in the, in the world around them, they were very familiar um, with the idea, especially of honoring the king, honoring a politician. Um, you know, uh, Jesus and Paul showed us the New Testament and the way they replied, even the very wicked rulers, there was a great deal of respect. And I've suggested to you several times as a church family, you know, we owe our political leaders, even those we disagree with, a modicum of respect for the position they hold. And, you know, I, I just feel like um, we, our culture is sliding there and losing that. But so here's the idea, is that even subjects um, honor the king. They, they bowed his presence. They, they would not dare, dare show disrespect in his presence. And so now God makes this legitimate argument from these two relationships that would have been in their mind and had a strong opinion about. He says to them, so understanding this, he goes, I'm your father. Now, that's, that's not just an illustration. That's a truth. That's a truth. God is, let's say people, He is our Father. He is Abba Father. He is the Almighty Father. Um, we are His blood-bought children. We are in His family. We've been grafted as Gentiles into the family of God. This is not a metaphor. This is not an illustration. It's a truth. If you're a Christianite, then God is your father. Then he says, and I am your master. I am your Lord. I am your king. Again, this is not metaphor. This is not, you know, some illustration. The truth is, we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He is that to us. So, He's looking at a group of people, and He says to them, I am your Father, I am your Lord, but you are not even the slightest way showing me the respect that a son would to a father, or that a citizen would to the king. Um, I'm not receiving that same level of worth from you. As the people, you know, you would, you would get this and you're doing it, but not for me. Now, God's arguing that you are treating him, the Lord, with a lesser devotion than you would show to earthly relationships. And this spiritual relationship, in terms of priority, ought to be even greater. So then he levels this argument, this complaint, directly. Now, this is interesting. Not the people as a whole, but to the priests. So, you know, this, this is true of the people. But there's, there's a group of people who are somewhat more responsible here for allowing faulty worship to happen in this way. And it's the priests. It's kind of like this. If we came into a church service and, you know, um, I don't know what we do, but if, if our service has really dishonored God, okay, well, all of us would be culpable, right? But I would, I would hold a special culpability. I, 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 I would, it's within my 
designated role to protect what happens here, what occurs behind this pulpit, what, what, what these group of people behind here seeing, the way you conduct yourself in this building. The truth is, I have some responsibility there, and if things are loose, it's really fair to look at me and to hold me in a special level of responsibility for that. Is that not true? If your home's that way, the same is true for a mother and a father. Or if you own a business, the same would be true for the owner. In other words, everyone can be guilty, but those who have special responsibility need to do something about it to make it better. And in this case, the priests were doing nothing about the faulty worship of the people. They were allowing it. They were, they were engaging it. They were not correcting it. And God had a special um, anger about what these priests were allowing. As a matter of fact, he said, the priests, you're despising my name by offering this kind of worship. He accuses them of despising his name. The people were obviously guilty, presenting defiled gifts. We'll see that in a moment. But the priests were responsible for what happened in the temple worship. And they even had, if you will, temple guards and whatever to correct what went wrong. But they were allowing it to happen. They were guilty for failing to hold up a high standard for worship in God's house. They were allowing and accepting offerings that they knew full and well were below what God asked of them. And God was justifiably upset at the priests and the people. Some, um, some of these people were just, the priests were just like a father neglecting a home or a politician failing to really represent the people. Uh, what they were doing was negligent, it was corrupt, it was evil, it was wrong. And God uses those kinds of words in the text. Okay. Now, despite allowing what was very obvious, which God will articulate in a moment, these people are disputing with God. In the hypothetical conversation, they hear God's complaint and said, no, we're not. Wherein have we despised thee? You know, the priests were saying this. The people were saying, we don't see it that way. We don't see our worship as inferior or corrupt in any way. And so they dispute and argue with God. And the question they was asked is the same ask, the question they ask about love. In the earlier verses, he says, so uh, God, wherein have we despised thy name? Okay, now stop for a second. <laughs> Do you think if someone stood in this pulpit and, and, and came at us really hard and said, what you're doing here, the way you're singing is contemptible and despicable. You think some people here would get defensive? And you think some people could be wrong about it? From God's vantage point? So God, in courtesy, engages in their question. He says, well, your, your sacrifices are polluted. And uh, the word polluted means defiled, desecrated, graphic. Um, it's like you spit on it and give it to me. That's, that's defiled. That's polluted. That's the idea. Okay? You're, this, is, this is not something that should be received. So, to this um, declaration of God, in offense, in self-justification, the priests and the people dispute again, wherein have we polluted thee? Have we made the table of the Lord, the altar, contemptible, vile, despicable? And God graciously replies again in your offerings and sacrifices. And he basically says, they do not represent what I've asked or my true worth. In other words, you're presenting something beneath or below what 
um, my covenant relationship with you should represent. I am loving you, taking care of you, protecting you, bringing you back from here. All the nations around you are being judged, and you are my special people, and you can't muster anything but a crippled, blind, lame, sick sheep. Um, it's not worthy of our relationship. He says, you're offering to me what was supposed to be the, the best of the sheep, the first of the sheep, the tenth, the first fruits. You're giving me your discards, your rejects. You're giving me that which is blind. You're giving me disfigured animals that are worth nothing in terms of monetary value. You're presenting animals that no one wants, <laughs> and you're giving them to me. So much could be said here. I'll just continue with the sermon. This is the antithesis of the heart that God expects. What does God expect? Well, something more akin to David's attitude. 2 Samuel 24. There's a plague upon the people. David's fault. Um, plague befalls the people. God stays it. There's a hill that um, David's going to offer a sacrifice there. A man named Aaronoth says to David, I'll give it to you. Like, uh, uh, David, you're the king. I'll, I'll give you the hill. And uh, David says, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God that cost me nothing. David said, I'm not, I'm not going to give God that which takes no effort, cost me nothing. How would that say that I love him? How would that communicate that I, I, I appreciate all he's done in my life? He said, I refuse to do it. By the way, that hill um, became Jerusalem, Mount Moriah. It was a big deal. But God, the difference, I won't do that. And this is an, an antithesis to the way these people felt. God says, uh, states, you've given me your throwaways. You're sick, you're blind, you're discarded, you're lame. And that's evil. There's no credit for that. Then God appeals again to relationship that they already had, the governor and the ruler. He says this, okay, so... Here's my complaint. You're not seeing it. He said, well, so let's, let's, let me just bring this to where you live. Would you take this blame, this, this, this blind, lame, disformed creature, and if you're going to see the governor, would you lead that in there? And if you did, would he lift up his eyes to you and accept thy person? I mean, how common sense is this? That would get those people thrown into a dungeon somewhere. These people would be so severely rebuked for doing that. They wouldn't, here's the, they wouldn't dream of doing it. He says, neither God or the governor, verse 9, would accept that. And he said, the governor won't and I won't. And, and verse 10 is fascinating to me. The idea of verse 10 is this. So, he looks at this group of priests and people. And he says, is there anyone in this room who has the ethics and the character to at least shut the doors so no more of this goes on? 
Like, is there someone here that's bothered enough by this that they're going to say no more? Now, there's only one other time that the temple was shut, and I believe that was in the days of Nehemiah, and it was for safekeeping of someone from being murdered. But other than that, God never advises that the temple doors be shut. And he, he's looking at this group of people. Does no one here care enough about me to make this stop and to shut the door and, 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 and to stop seeing me weakly offended by what's transpiring in this sacred place? To stop this ignoble and unworthy practice? He says, I have no pleasure in your services or what you're doing. Verse 11, even the Gentiles, is the idea, do better than this. He said, instead of honoring me, you're profaning your worship, this place, and my name. And God used these strong words, pollute, defile, desecrate. Now, now look here. This is so important. Not just by your gifts, but by your attitudes. Not just by your lame gifts, but by your lame attitudes. Um, this is a weariness. Verse 13, I think. I will go do this, but it's a weariness. You know what? I get it. We come in here tired sometimes. I get that, especially Wednesday nights. And I understand that Sundays can be busy and hurried. And church ought to be a safe haven when people come and they get re-energized. And when the world casts them down, they come in here and, and they find a boost. Okay, I'm all for that. But if you just come in here week after week with a bad attitude, then don't. Do us all a favor and just leave. You don't need a year to get your heart right. If you come from the church, don't bring your bad attitude from another church. We don't need that here. You got trouble with somebody else and you can't get it resolved, then go have that problem someplace else and don't bring that in here. Is, is that direct enough? Okay. I, I don't know who gives what in this place. I don't look at that. So that's between you and God, and God's going to do that. But I can see and notice a bad attitude. And so I feel some pretty direct admonition as a priest, I'm not that, but you get the idea, to allow sorry attitudes to exist in here week after week and not kindly invite you to correct it or find the door. Because that doesn't help any of us. And that's true from young person to older. If you're going to be here, then be here happy. And, and we can have problems, we can have issues, and there's a right way to address that. And there's going to be seasons when all of us are bent, and that's okay. That's called being a human. I'm talking about long-term, disgruntled, bad attitudes. Well, there he goes. He's preaching about money again. That's the fourth time in 52 weeks. <laughs> uh, you, you follow me? I mean, okay, I'm not just saying, does anybody here want those people here? It doesn't help us. I'm all about helping people. That's not what I'm talking about for a minute. I'm not talking about helping people. I'm not you know, we all come in here and we can be sour. That's, that's life. But we do have an obligation to work on it and to realize that our spirit affects other spirits. And in time, we've, we need to find some healing. 
We need to be responsible for the condition of our heart, and especially the way we rub other people. I mean, what a weariness church is. Snuff. I can't do a snuff. You know, whatever. A snort. They snuff at it. Here's what I... Okay. They roll... This is my... Uh, what did I say? They're rolling the eyes. There they go with that song. There he goes with that sermon. There they go with that again. You know, God help you. Seriously. You need to fix that. You come in here with these attitudes, it's not fair. They, they were complaining about giving. They were complaining about having hearts that were fully devoted. They were sighing, they were huffing, they were rolling their eyes at God. You see, it's not only what you bring physically that can be lame, sick, but so is your heart. And if you bring a heart in here that's continually lame and sick and blind and won't be fixed, God's going to ask this question. Should I receive that? And the answer is probably not. 14 says, this kind of behavior really brings on you a curse. You talk more about that in Malachi 3. And he's not talking about like a specific curse. He's talking about a state of curse. You're going to live as though you weren't part of the covenant people. You're going to live outside the blessing I want to give you with these kind of offerings and this kind of attitudes week after week. I can't bless you with this behavior. And so, application here is I'd just be done. You know, honestly, I could quit. Because the application is so obvious and easy. I have absolutely no doubt, in varying degrees, that we, and I mean specifically we at Eastland Baptist Church, could be guilty of some of these same kind of accusations from God. Maybe some more than others, and all of us guilty at some times. Maybe not always or ubiquitously, but in some times. We can have attitudes and actions that are less than um, what they should be in our worship, in our singing, in our attitude. On a larger scale, you know, I would hope that our worship isn't polluted. You know, you know, you know why what comes to the church can be polluted? Because we live in a polluted way for six days out of the week. It's really hard to live in a trash can for six days and come in here and act like you live someplace else. And you don't have the stains of that on you. I'm not talking about the dirtiness of the world. That's just what the world is. I'm talking about the dirtiness of your heart and what you engage in, and what we do. Why were these people giving this junk? Because their hearts were junk. They were living in junk. The day before the temple was junk. The day before that was junk. It's really hard to get it corrected in that hour. Bad worship is just a manifestation of a bad life. Just, just, God wasn't just upset at what was happening in the walls of the temple. He was, his larger complaint was the attitude of their lives was wrong. Living in a polluted way Monday through Saturday makes it really hard to live in a non-polluted environment for our purposes on a Sunday. Our bodies are a temple. More than this building, because this building is just nothing but bricks and you know, concrete and whatever. 
the real temple in here is you and our collected assembly, the church. And if we defile that every day, then how can we bring something other than some, a polluted offering on Sunday? Does that make sense? Hold on. Does that make sense? The question is, are we giving God in our lives something worthy of the blood that He shed for us? Of the grace and the goodness and gifts. Now listen, one more time, trying to find some mercy and grace here. Our humanity shows all the time. Is, does it merit that? Look here, all of our righteousness will forever be like filthy rags. I understand that theologically. That's not what I'm talking about. You're, you're, you're ne- your heart's never going to be good enough that God says, whoa, look at that. But He knows the heart. And, and He knows the penitent heart. And He knows the contrite heart. And He knows someone who's trying. Right? He knows someone who's trying. Someone who confesses their sins and dealing with that. Someone who's trying to sing. Someone who's trying to give. Someone who's generally trying to live for God. He knows that. Let me make this, this is just meaningful to me. When you pillow your head, okay, when you pillow your head tonight, has your day been a worthy sacrifice? Forget what we're doing here. Your day today, you go to bed, you take the, the 12 waking hours, whatever it is, 16 waking hours, you take that and say, there you go, God on the altar. There's, there's my day. Because our lives are a, what kind of sacrifice? Living. So here, there's my Wednesday. Is that okay? Here's my Tuesday. There's my Monday. Here's Thursday, here's my Friday night, here's my Saturday, here's my alone time, here's my TV time. You follow me? I'm not trying to guilt people. I'm trying to make you, help us understand what's being said here. There's my day. What would God do with it? How would He view that? See, it's just easier if we think about, well, what's what I put in the offering plate or the box or what I do for these 45 minutes, that's a big deal, absolutely a big deal. But he's really speaking to a larger condition. It's the life you're living worth the sacrifice. So we compound that predicament when we bring our polluted vessels into our services. And if we are mindful and cautious, we're going to follow the admonition of Isaiah, who basically says, um, I'm weary of all this, but if you'll come in here and wash your hearts, then you'll be whiter than snow. Come let us reason together. In other words, let you and I talk. You know, let's, let's start Sunday or a worship time or a Monday morning with, God, I need your grace. This has been hard. I've had a lot of failures. I'm going to fail today. By the grace of God, I want to do better. I'm going to try to honor you today. Lord, I'm coming to a service and my heart is on a thousand things and the wife and I argued in the van and the kids were crazy and I'm walking in here and my mind is so distracted. 
So God, forgive me for my week. Lord, help me to do better. God, help me to go in there and give you my, a song that's worthy to be heard with a heart that's worthy to be received. And God, help me to listen in such an attentive manner that you're taking notes on me. Like, I know that's work. Let's give some effort to confessing our sins, examining our heart, then engaging in our corporate worship time together. It might be best if our, if our worship time started before you got here. What do you bring into church? <laughs> Attitude and gift. Attitude and gift. And do you think that those two things are something that you won't be embarrassed by? You know, tangibly, some people's gifts are beneath the dignity of God. God makes it pretty clear what a tithe is, what an offering is. And Jesus, you know, kind of like really anted that up a, a lot in terms of, you know, in other words, if you want to argue about a tithe, feel free because God expects more from his people than a tithe. That's a whole other sermon. We use these religious words like sacrifice. Okay. If we're not careful, it just means nothing. What, what, what does God want us to bring? Abraham took his one and only son, Isaac, and he brought him down to the altar. And assuming his life was going to be taken. And his faith was so great he thought God would, would resurrect him. That's sacrifice. See, we want, we want a worship and a sacrifice that costs us we want to live on Arana's dime. I'm happy to come on your tithe. It's okay with me if the AC stays going because of someone else's tithe. It's okay if someone else watches my kids in the nursery. It's okay if somebody else pushes a broom. It's okay if somebody else teaches a class. It's okay if somebody else does it all. You know what? I'm not much different from a socialist, re religiously, a liberal, whatever. I know. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. I'm not trying to be unkind. These are things I think we relate to. We would, we would not be for, there are forms of welfare we'd be okay with, but there are a lot of forms of welfare that you and I have a real problem with. Okay, that same thing here in this church. And, and the question is, is, does it cost you anything? And if it's really easy to give, well, that may be because you've grown in faith. So, so maybe add a percent or two to see what that does. David, I will, offer no, I will not offer something that costs me nothing. Time or treasure. What is serving God costing you? And I don't mean that to sound negative. That's just a reality. In terms of value. Why do you think people don't give, don't show up to services, come to outreach? What's the real answer to that question? The real answer. 
not, not the one we, you know, we give. Why don't people come to the services, come to outreach, pass out a track? Why? Because it costs too much, period. You could fill that in and color it a thousand ways. That's just the simple truth. It costs something. It costs them something they want to keep for themselves, their time. My time. Is it? Who gave you breath? Who gave you life? Who's giving you these seven days in a week? Who's keeping you alive in the 24 hours of a day? Whose time is it? We could argue and fuss about what God merits. But we might be dangerously close to getting the same answer from God that they've got. What about your attitudes? In the text, they huffed and they puffed and they rolled their eyes. They resented giving because it was just unreasonable and too much. And how about, um, okay, let's, let's remove the negative of huffing and puffing. What if we just come in here indifferent and apathetic and don't participate? Is that more acceptable? What are we focused on during the song service? Especially on a Sunday morning when so much effort's been gone, given to it. Let me ask you a question, how are you singing? And if we were to, this would be terrifying to me, but if we could just isolate your voice alone, that's all that God could hear. You gonna be okay how that sounds? And I'm talking about quality, but I'm talking about heart, maybe some volume. When someone asks us to teach or serve, well, now you're intruding on my time. Oh, I, what's your attitude about these things? Nursery, helper, teacher. I won't be unkind, but what kind, you know, at Eastland, membership is supposed to mean something not just a name on a roll. I want to, I want to suggest to you from the scripture and as the governor, don't live on another man's dime because God deserves better than that. Contempt isn't always malicious. Sometimes it's just lazy and indifferent and apathetic. God help us all to guard our hearts in the way we worship Him. Let me ask you to stand.